Parenting is hard. Working in parenting seems harder. Driving here and there and finding time to eat is sometimes overwhelming. I get why fast food joints and packaged meals from the grocery store are appealing. If you could find better packages of soups or other foods to use that are convenient, you would probably use them. My guest today wanted those very things, so she made them. Now she has a business that sells mixes you are happy to feed your family. The Eating Liberty Podcast, episode 232, Food and Freedom Once a Week for Life. Hello folks, Stan Reed here. Well, I hope everybody had a good week. My guest today is Cassie Menchoffer, and she's returning to the show, sort of. Previously she was on Culinary Libertarian, but that's just a just a thing. Last time we spoke about maple syrup, and we're actually going to cover that. There is some new tech for maple syrup makers that I find very interesting. I invited Cassie on to talk about her small business of food mixes. One big problem with commercial mixes is they include a bunch of stuff you don't want to eat. Cassie decided to make mixes without those ingredients, and that's kind of how she started a business. Hello, Cassie. Thank you for joining me again on the, well, this is interesting, joining me for the first time on the Eating Liberty podcast, but talking to me for the second time. Boy, that's confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. Uh, All right. So give our, I'm glad you're here too. I know it's kind of late for you. Uh, something goes on TV, but that's probably not true at all. Um, give give the listeners a review or a reminder of who you are, and we're going to get into some food stuff. Sure. Uh, my name is Cassie Menchover from rural Western Ohio, and I love food. I love talking about food. I love eating food. I love making food, and I have a business with food that I'm sure we'll get into. We will, as a matter of fact, get into your business about food. Um, so... Let's do just that. Uh, tell us what your business is, and then I want to I sort of get into how it started, but then really get into some nuts and bolts about it, because there's a, there's a few things that are interesting to me. Okay. My business name is Cassie's Country Cupboard, and it started back in 2011 as the Ohio Cottage Food business, and I started it because I had two young kids. One was a newborn, one was three years old. And we live way out in the country. It takes at least 20 minutes to get anywhere that you want to go. And dragging two young kids into town to go to the grocery store was not something I was interested in because my husband also worked full time and was um, as a farmer and so not around a lot to take care of them if I wanted to go somewhere. So I thought, well, if I want to make pancakes and I don't have Bisquick on hand, then I need to figure out how to do it with what I do have in my pantry, which would be flour, sugar, baking powder all of those usual things, but I'd never done that before. I grew up on the convenience foods like Betty Crocker potatoes and rice-a-roni and all of those things. So that's what I had in Mm. my pantry too, but I had a few other things. And I started to make those different 
convenience foods on my own. I made pancake mix that I kept in a container and I made hamburger helper type things, but without all the junk that was in what you would find at the grocery store. And I thought, well, if I can make it, then maybe other people would be interested in it too, without the preservatives, without the artificial colors, without the artificial flavors. And it tastes just as good or better than what they can get on the grocery store shelf. So that's where it all started. Okay. So the cottage food, now, I, in most states are pretty much the same, but there are, as far as the rules and regulations go, but every state does have a few differences. Um, are this? Are you capped? Well, so the first question is: Are you still under whatever the rules are for cottage food in Ohio? Thankfully, no. In 2020, I was able to get a licensed facility built on our property. So I'm not under cottage food law for the majority of my business. I do still bake granola and a few canned goods that I do in my home. So those are still under the cottage food law. Thankfully, in Ohio, there is no cap. Okay, well, that's a good thing. So when you, so I've seen you on your Facebook page, you've put pictures of your, um, I don't know if I'm sure you have a word for it, but it looks like it looks like a stand, like it's like a mobile store. You go to say flea markets or farmers markets and and set your stuff up. Is 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 that the part that fits into cottage law, or can you have a stand with your uh, freestanding building? I do not have a store in my freestanding building because. I'm way out in the boonies and nobody's going to come here is the biggest no. part of that. And it I, is a like, go ahead. I, I didn't, I didn't ask the question the right way. When you go to a flea market, is that when you set up at a flea market or at a farmer's market someplace in town, is, is that under the food law, the cottage food law? Actually, it's a mix. If I have my granola or canned goods, then that's the cottage food law piece of it. But since all of my other products are able to be sold nationwide wherever I want to, um, it's you know it's easy to just set up wherever I want as long as I'm following the majority of you know the food safety laws that are in right. place for everyone. Yeah, so that's food code stuff, and um, so then you are. Do you have? So, so your facility is going to be inspected twice a year from the state, right. and do do you? Now, I don't actually even know the answer to this question. It never even occurred to me to ask this question. Does your uh, inspection for the facility transfer to your mobile operation, or do you need a separate? Uh, inspection from the state to post, I'm assuming it has to be, at least if someone asks, you have to be able to present it. Does the, how, how do you, what's the rules for that? Is there some, so is, is, I guess the question is, is there a rule for you to have uh, proof of health inspection on your mobile uh, vending? There doesn't seem to be. We don't get inspected out when I'm out and about at different markets and things, no one has ever come for the last several years. There was at the farmer's market a couple of times, there's been some health inspectors there to check things out, but they're so overwhelmed. They don't even care about the farmer's markets anymore. And I do keep on hand my licensing just in case anything were to be questioned. But for the most part, it's very, very easygoing here in Ohio. I think the overwhelm part, I think that's, 
probably so for everybody. And and I'm extrapolating a whole lot because I've left out 47 other states. But in Florida, uh, when I was teaching culinary school, the so it's in the culinary school was in Tallahassee, which for college football fans recognizes that that's a college football town. And on home games, parts of downtown would close and restaurants on the street would put up tents for beer and they'd have food and other vendors would come in and set up tents and sell their stuff and have griddles and stoves and burners and all kinds of stuff. Uh, a lot of fun, craziness, but lots of fun. And according to Florida law, we had to at least have available proof of uh, health inspection and all that stuff. And never once in years was that I saw nobody was ever asked, are you inspected? I think because it's just, it's, I think there's too many places and too few people to do it. Um, there might be other reasons, but that never happened. So, uh, but I was curious, just seemed to be an interesting thing. Yeah. Uh, so, so as a, a mom interested in not driving 40 minutes to go get Bisquick starts what turns out to be, I'm assuming, a fairly successful business. And success has interesting measures, but we'll say since you've been doing it this long, it, it must be at least worth continuing to do it. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, I think so. I think now. It's different than it was in the beginning, and in the beginning is nice, and that's good. But I'm interested really in a lot. A lot has changed in the last four or five years, and one of the big things is the prices of everything has gone up a lot, and supply chain problems have made access to ingredients challenging. So it's, it, my first question on this line is, well, there's several. One of the things that I was interested in, you talked about you wanted to make, you wanted to make some, some, some kits. That's what we used to call them in the kitchen, make a baking kit. You want to make some kits, some mixes of things without all the other stuff that comes in there. I make my own version of Lowry's. I call it Daddy-O's. There's no sugar in it because it doesn't make sense to put sugar in it. Why is it everything else? Stop it. So are, what are some of the other kinds of ingredients, uh, additives? I guess this is the question. Can you buy, say, um, flowers or other uh, – and I don't really know much in the – and I know you make soup mixes and you make um, – uh, I don't know what goes into that. So – I'm, I'm somebody's probably making a dried version of a stock. Is it possible to get dried version of stock or broth that doesn't have things you don't want in it? I don't think that I've not found it. And that's why I don't, I encourage people to add their own broth or stock oh. instead of me trying to make that. It's not a just add water product. I encourage them to use broth to add that flavor that they need because otherwise you almost always have to have something with yeast extract or MSG or something along those lines, things that I don't consider needed. And I rather them add their own part of that. And also the salt level, I can keep the salt to a very minimum level. Whereas then they can choose if they want to use unsalted broth or if they want to use salted broth, that's all up to them and they can control that better. 
I see that's a, a brilliant point, and I, I know so little about this that I didn't even know to ask. Is it so? As so, you know, and we all know, listeners, that there's you can buy from a variety of companies. Some of them begin with L. Sound like a tea company. Um, a a powdered version of they actually I think they call it bouillon. You can get them in cubes, and the salt level is well, it's high. Um, so you're making it's more of a of a seasoning, and uh, do you have are the uh, freeze dried veggie chunks in there? There's dehydrated vegetables dehydrated. and and beans. A lot of my products have dehydrated beans in them, so they've been cooked and dehydrated, which makes them quick cooking instead of needing to soak and boil for so very long. Most of my products can be made in 30 minutes or less. And the difference between now, I don't have a freeze dryer, so I I, I know they're big and expensive. Is, is the main difference between dehydrating and freeze drying that dehydrated is the ingredient has been cooked and that's dehydrated, whereas freeze drying is you just take strawberries and put them on the sheet pan and put them in the thing and it dries them out. I don't know the exact science, but I don't, I think the beans are the only thing that have been cooked and then dehydrated, whereas the vegetables can be just dehydrated or just freeze dried. They're different processes and different textures. I prefer the texture of the dehydrated versus the freeze dried. I think that the freeze dried just has a tendency to melt more than reconstitute to the point that we really view the, what it's supposed to taste like. Right. So a D, so so you've got beans. Are there things like carrots and celery and onions in there too? Yes, and then like a potato soup that I make has the dehydrated potatoes, carrots, celery, onion, and then a variety of spices. Do you have so? Is there also, um, like potato flour? I don't use potato flour. I use the dehydrated potato flakes that have not been processed, oh. like your. Um, the ones that you can get in a box typically have all sorts of things added to them. The ones that I purchase are strictly potatoes that have been flaked. Okay. But I would recognize the same texture as like the thin, oh, and all right. So that's interesting. So I, I remember I sent you an Instagram chat comment once and, and it became because I was making, what was I making? Oh, I was making mashed potatoes and then they had, all this leftover water. I said, you know, <laughs> I don't know why I thought of this, but it is like this, there's there's potato flavor in this water. And I thought of you and I said, you know, this would be a perfect base because sometimes people don't want to waste things with flavor. So this would be a perfect place to take one of your soup mixes, add that to that potato water, which now has potato flavor and maybe, you know, it's seasoned the way you want it. And I thought, wow, what a really good idea. So I was like, and maybe even the same if you are a vegetable steaming person and you have, this is weird to me, but the, if you steam broccoli, the water ends up tasting like broccoli. And it doesn't seem to me that it should, but it does. And then it starts to smell like broccoli. It's like, wow, this is really nasty <laughs> stuff. But <laughs> that's another thing. Um, all right. Well, these, yeah, this is... Usually I ask questions and know the answer to, but this was this was an education. When you 
So let's say you're going to come up with a new thing, and I don't know what the new thing would be, but um, there, there's a – so some of your things are working. You have, you have um, baking. You have a cookie or at least several cookie uh, – what do you call them? Packs, kits? Yeah, cookie mixes, yeah. Cookie mixes. And so I'm, that's probably you need – probably need butter. Um, and what else? What else do you need? So I want to make I, I want to make a cassie cookie mousse. <laughs> so butter, egg, and vanilla. Egg and vanilla, of course. So you're not using dehydrated eggs. No, no. But that okay. way, again, if people have certain allergies, they can use the replacements as they see fit. I try right. and fit things as easy as they can into whatever diet they need it to be. Right, and so anybody who can eat eggs probably has eggs, and so it's no big deal. Right. Good idea. So let's say we're going to, you're going to invent something completely new. Let's say maybe you, maybe if you have a skill and pretend you don't, um, how, I, I think the R and D for a mix that's going to work for the person who's familiar only with, with packet cooking. And I grew up, I mean, I, I, I'm from Michigan, not too far away from Ohio. And it's not unique to the Midwest, but that's what I know. And what I know is that we didn't have a lot of money as kids. Uh, when my parents were young and, and they were going to school and whatever. And just So packet cooking was kind of what happened. You bought a pound of hamburger and you stretched it out with boxes of other stuff. And it's like, well, this is great. This is exciting. And it's it's not a judgment. That's just what they did. And I don't know that. I don't think my parents were trying to be mean. I think my try, parents were trying to make every penny go as far as it possibly could to feed the kids something that they could put in their face and they would eat. I mean, it's like that's a challenge. Finding yeah. something that they will eat isn't the same as giving them something that they can eat. And any parents are like, oh yeah, uh huh, I got that one. So I I get that. You want to make sense to appease to as many people as possible. But how is there a process? What does the R&D process look like to invent a new, uh, a new mix that's going to work for all those markets? Honestly, I, I wish that it was a amazing process that I went through. But a lot of times I'm taking recipes that I find in a cookbook and I think, well, how can I turn this into something that is able to be packaged up and sold to the masses? And I'll go through a few different recipes and take a look and give it a try to see if I can mix the dry ingredients aside from the wet and see how that works. Now with cookies, it's interesting if you're an actual cookie baker, you know that you're supposed to cream the butter and the sugar together. But if you're buying it in a packet like this, your butter is going to be just creamed by itself and the sugar's already in with the flour and everything. So it's hard for someone who actually bakes to take a mix and understand how it's going to work. But um, those who are used to I, cooking with things that are off the shelf, then it's no, not strange to, the, to them at all. I, I admit to being one of those guys who will try to undo the idiot proof directions that the packet has provided. <laughs> <laughs> like, no this can't be right this is too simple it's got to be harder let's make this harder Don't. 
Sorry, there's uh, audio entertainment for, I don't know if you can hear the, the dogs are. There, there's a 17 pound, this is a 17 pound black dog, which is a Chawini, Chihuahua and a weenie dog um, hybrid, I guess. And then an 80 pound white dog. So they, it's, watching them play is interesting. And watching the 17 pound dog chase the 80 pound dog outside is even more fun because it's, <laughs> it turns around fast. But uh, they, they enjoy themselves and it makes me smile. And well, we can use more of that in the world. For sure. Um, so with the, with, and I don't even know if the supply chain problem has just become something we've tolerated and gotten used to, or if it has actually been fixed, but have you, have you had trouble finding quality, finding ingredients to the quality level that you want to get them and at the price point you want to pay? The actual availability is definitely the harder piece of it. Price-wise, I haven't noticed too bad of a, a jump. Now, part of that is because my increase in volume has gone up as well. So I don't feel that price increase as much because when I buy in a larger bulk, then my price is going down from what I had been right. paying. Now, availability... Uh, I really struggle with something. Barley has been difficult for me to find because I don't necessarily want the quick cooking kind that you can pick up off the grocery store shelf. I'm looking for a very specific kind of barley and that has become difficult to find. So one of my products is a lentil and barley soup that I have taken off of my list of products that I have available for now until I can find a consistent supply. And of course, in 2020, it was difficult to find much of anything on a consistent basis, but that has turned around pretty well. There's most things I can find. So what's the issue with the barley you buy in the store that, that doesn't please you? I need something longer cooking. I need the pearled kind oh. in bulk gotcha. rather than the, the quick cooking kind doesn't match with the lentils that I use for matching that cook. I got you. I thought that I was thinking there's some that, that that's a, a that's a very simple answer to a very simple question, but <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Um, I'm how many SKUs or products do you currently have? I just went out and counted them tonight. About thirty. Well, wow, that's pretty good. And that and includes a variety of spice mixes and the cookie mixes and the pancake mixes and the the soup mixes, all of that combined. Right. Nice. Um, so one of the things that I, I think people sometimes overlook and business owners definitely do not overlook is packaging, paper goods. Uh, I was talking to a chef friend of mine in Florida who said that Paper goods, including uh, chemicals, have gone up twenty percent. And he says it's just it's it's now nobody has any reason to know that dishwashing chemicals for a restaurant are are ridiculously expensive. It's it can be a hundred dollars a thing for a rinse additive or for soap. It's a, it's insane how expensive that stuff can be. And some of you restaurant folks are like, only a hundred dollars. Who, who does that? Well, I, it's been a while, but anyway, the point is that chemicals and paper goods are expensive and gloves, nitrile gloves. Holy smokes. I, and you have what looks like really nice bags, good resealable bags. They look, they look see through them. 
have you noticed that your product costs are going up for for that kind of thing for paper goods? It's less of the actual product and more on the freight side. So I'm having to order in larger quantities to reach freight levels, whether it's free freight or just oh. you know different tiers, which is more difficult because you have to have that cash flow. Yes. But the price of them in by themselves, not not too big of a jump, but it's the freight that really gets you. So yeah, so now you have you have available cash to buy. Now you need to buy five. I'm going to make up a number here: five thousand envelopes for a soup mix. And now you this cash you don't have to buy the ingredients to go in the bag for the soup right. mix. Yeah, that's uh, and this is this is part of. There isn't a whole lot of reason that the general public who isn't in the restaurant business or the food service business should have any understanding of how it works. There's, I'm sure there's a business model to an operating room for a surgeon. I have no idea what it is, and quite frankly, I just don't care. It's not interesting to me. The controller at the hospital and the administrator, they need to know. Me? Eh, whatever. I don't care. But there's, there's definitely a, a, a cash problem. Where if you spend it in one place, you can't spend it in another place. And this is what I think, not that there is a reason for the public to know, but and not for sympathy, but just understand that why is my restaurant cutting back on all of my favorite things? Well, <laughs> it's because prices have gone up and they can't get all of your favorite things. Um, labor is the problem. Do you have, you have employees or are you all buy your onesie? I, along with my husband, does help periodically, but it's just the two of us that are in the building. All right, so at least there's there's that managed. Although I, I did an episode maybe a year or more ago about minimum wage, and you were um, you you gave me gave me a, a nod of approval that that was a well done episode, and I think people still miss the, the basics of that. But that's that's for another it's for another another show. Um, <laughs> all right, I want to just. I don't want you to give actual numbers, but I want to talk a little bit about um, so about percentages, about sort of running a, running a business, and this is definitely going to qualify as a small business, but you're still running a business. So I'm pretty sure Ohio has taxes. So between so let's let's. Keep it kind of simple. So on, on sales, are you, because you don't have employees, so if you had employees, you'd be paying uh, payroll tax. Uh, do you pay, well, do you pay payroll tax on yourself? Well, like Social Security would need to come out if I made enough. Most of the time, I don't make enough to have to worry about too many taxes with the okay. business. I have enough deductions. Um and with the farm too, and we have lots of, and I have a W-2 job still too. So plenty of taxes are happening in our life, but I don't worry too much with the food business and I don't have to charge sales tax either on that. So that's helpful that I don't have to worry about that piece because in Ohio grocery type items are not taxed. Oh, well, that's good to know. I think, I think Oregon's like that too. And then I think, I what counts as grocery, I think, changes. Everyone has a different idea. But all right, so that's good. I'm sure your customers are happy about that. Um, yes. Does that does that really? So, what about mail order? 
and, and this might be a really complicated question, is if I bought something from you online, well, that doesn't count because Oregon doesn't have sales tax. Let's say I'm in a state that does have sales tax. Do I have to pay? Do you even know the answer? I mean, I don't know if you know this or not. Do I have to pay I sales tax? I don't Okay. I think that that's where when your accountant asks you, did you buy something from out of state? You're supposed to say yes and admit to that and pay the tax that you should have paid. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's fine. Um, so is there, well, I don't, I don't want to get too personal, but I'm just, uh, is, is the, is there a note on the building? Oh, no, no, we did. Okay. We bootstrapped that, that process. Um, so, so maybe, all right. So, so you have, you have obviously you have expenses of probably electricity, possibly plumbing. Um, do you, and I'm assuming probably insurance because it's a business. Yes. Yep. Um, and then supplies, so ingredients. So the cost of, the cost of your ingredients, all the things you're using in your mixes, um, uh, storage containers, and there's probably a minimal breakage and replacement, but it might happen, or expansion, uh, shelving. Um, you probably have to buy boxes to ship things in, and you buy the package to put the mixes in. So right. all these things... Um, in in a percentage term, if you, because I'm going to go to a place with this, um, what do you think is the neighborhood of your net profit? I believe I have a gross profit of about 50% when you just consider my cost of goods. And that's right. when I'm selling to retail. So if I'm selling direct to a customer, it's about 50% gross profit. Then, of course, when you figure in your wholesale customers and that cuts into their, I have refused to go the route of distributors and large grocery chains because the slotting fees and the free fill requirements and the return backs and all of that. I'm just, I'm not interested in playing that game. It's very complicated. And I think, I think that's another thing. And I was, I don't think people know that the things you see in the grocery store aren't there by chance. They're paid for. Right. It blows my mind that you have to pay as a brand to earn space on a grocery store shelf that I still can't wrap my head around that. It's, it's fiercely competitive. It's, it's obscene, but okay. Um, I think that that 50 pence, 50% is probably pretty good. But that doesn't mean that that's the profit. I guess so. Then you no, still no, have your, I mean, no. There's all the yeah. advertising and things too. So um, that's yeah, just I didn't that think gross about advertising. piece, right? So I was doing. Uh, I'm well. When this this is coming out um, soon, well, Monday next. Uh, I can't. I can't add that fast. It's March something. Um, so I'm, I'm, the listeners know I've been working on. I was contracted to write a book about 50 questions that you would ask a chef. And I have, I'm going to submit the book. I have no idea what's going to happen to it. That's out of my control, so I don't worry about it. But one of the several of the questions involved, um, does a chef need to have a does chef need to know about business? And the answer is absolutely. Even if it's not yours, you you need to have a sense of how to run it like it is yours so that you can come back tomorrow to have a job. Um, 
But one of the things that chef needs to understand is what is the gross profit and what is net profit and how does the chef's ability to manage the food purchased control what net profit is going to be. And so all those things add up. So you have to know in, in a restaurant, the big ticket items are the big places to make or lose money. So uh, seafood and beef protein and well, beef first or game, then chicken, but it all adds up because you're buying in lots of quantities. And uh, a website which is just sort of aggregating information says the net profit of most restaurants is 4 to 7%. And I mentioned that to a few chefs and they said, what? No, it's not. Come on. Who are these people? So I asked uh, a chef's group, just, hey, guys, I don't want numbers. Just give me, I don't want cash numbers. I want percentages. What's your net profit? So one guy told me he's got, he's 20% and he's his only employee. It's a little Asian kitchen in Brooklyn, and he worked. Now, the plus side is he's got 20% net profit. The downside is he's working 12 to 14 hours a day, six days a week. That's a lot of work. Um, yeah. So, I'm because you aren't serving to the public, except on your terms, which is you show up at. Uh, at a fair, at a flea market, or at a farmer's market. You're there until you're not there, and you decide when it's time to go home, or maybe they tell you, but um, it's not, you know, five to five to ten, six days a week. Um, you probably have a better working hours situation than most <laughs> self-employed chefs uh, slinging behind a stove. Absolutely. Well, that's a good thing. And, and you, you have all of those things that – um, not all chefs, but most chefs seem to, the, the, the job requires is you work holidays, you miss kids' soccer's game, you miss dinners at home, you miss, <laughs> you miss life, you miss Christmas, you miss Thanksgiving. Um, and, and so I think for your, for your business, that's a good thing because you have those things. And, and having known you a little bit, I, I think that that's a, a valuable thing that you probably wouldn't be willing to surrender. That's right. Okay. Um, what's your favorite mix? My sweet potato and black bean chili mix. And when you have customers coming in buying this, and then this is the, really, it's going to be the repeat customers who say, you know, I bought, I bought this mix, I bought that mix, I made it as you suggested, but then I did this. What... I'm interested in both the people who are trying it and saying, you know, I've bought store mixes before and this is, this is so much better. So do you, I'm sure you have that. What is there? Do you, what is the, I don't know how to ask this. What kind of feedback are you getting from people who are using your mix compared to something they've had from a store and, and then, this, the repeat users, how are they innovating? What are they doing that you never even thought of? And it's like, wow, customer, that's a genius idea. I'd say a lot of the genius ideas are things that they've added to it. A lot of times they're trying to make it go further for a larger family and just the different 
vegetables that they will add to it. Even though I already have vegetables in there, they add different ones or they'll add a pasta to one that doesn't have pasta typically. Um, that's probably the most creative that they get. And a lot of my customers are not creative and that's why they're buying my products in the first place. They okay. aren't home cooks. They've, they shop the interior of the store far more than the exterior and right. they appreciate the ease that my products give them with good flavor. And they do talk about how it doesn't take salt to make them flavorful where other, they know that the other soups, soup mixes that they've tried, it's the sodium that's giving it to fl the flavor. And they appreciate that that is not the case with mine. Sweet. So w what is special to you about the sweet potato black bean? It goes along with my interest in fancier food, I guess. Um, not the typical Midwest fare of meat and potatoes. It's got something different about it. it. It's interesting, I tell people. And people kind of shy away from it because it's not their typical Midwest fare. But I encourage them to try it. And I tell them that most anyone who tries it comes back for more because they didn't realize it was going to be so good. It's not Thanksgiving sweet potatoes. It's not sweet potato pie. It is a savory sweet potato instead. And that's an and that's an important point, especially in the Midwest, where I think most people would think sweet potato means candied yams, means sugar, it means intolerably sweet sugar. So I don't want you to give away everything, but to me, so sweet potato I know has a lot of versatility to it. So I hear black beans, and I'm thinking uh, if I were to add to that, I would like a chorizo to that. Um, so sweet potato and black beans can handle a fair amount of heat. So maybe red pepper flakes. I think it really needs to have cumin and powdered coriander in there. Um, what is, is it a, is it a spicy flavor profile? Is it Southwest? Is it just, what, what would you clarify? Is there a classification for it? It's a classic chili flavor with more smoke because oh. I use smoked paprika along with the cumin nice. as well. And there's chili powder in there too, but it's a mild chili. I try not to go any more than a medium level. If you think about your salsas, I tell people, you know, different soups are mild or medium if they think about their salsas and the sweet potato is definitely more mild, but you can always add more heat as you oh, yeah. see. Oh yeah. Just can't take it out. Right. And I love the chorizo idea. So I'm writing that down right now, Dan. Oh, good. Well, the smoked paprika was that's inspired. I like that idea. That's a really good idea because that's a that's a a signature ish kind of. I mean, that's a unique flavor. Nothing else tastes like it. You can't approximate it any way you want to, but really nice. Although, I guess if you were um, if you if you had the ability to get your oil hot, add your onions, and then put in your regular good Hungarian paprika, get it cooked just a touch. You could approximate it, but it's not the same because the way they smoke those peppers is something else. Nice. Very, very fun. And so the people who don't listen or who don't know or don't follow you probably need to because you are posting pretty frequently on Instagram uh, some of the ideas and some of the things you do. So um, so this is your this is your pitch moment. It's it's was I, I'm going to get this wrong. Meatless Monday and something else. You have like themes for the week and what's going on during the week to help people. I think really this is fundamentally managing time. 
Yeah, and that is that is my goal, is to help people get food on the table without losing their sanity, especially those with busy families, because that's tough for most families having one or two working parents. Um, it's it's tough to avoid the drive through window, and I'm trying to help people do that. Well, yeah, my and and so so is Meatless Monday is right? Did I get that one right? Yep, and typically it's Meatless Monday, um, a tip Tuesday, so simple tips on Tuesdays. Wednesday is always something funny about food, and that's typically one of the ones that gets the most interaction is Wacky Wednesday, which is fun. Oh, okay. Um, Thursday is typically a thankful Thursday. I'm thankful for a different retailer. I'm thankful to a different family member who's helped me along the way. Um, Friday is typically freezer Friday because I love to use my freezer. We grow a lot of our own produce and I'm depending on my freezer to give me the peppers and the onions and the meats that we produce ourselves. And I encourage other people to use their freezers too. Saturday is often something sweet that I focus on. And Sundays, if I post on Sunday, is typically a slow cooker recipe. Oh, that's a good idea. Uh, how many freezers do you have? Oh, Four. <laughs> we probably produce 50% of our own food between meat and vegetables and fruit on our homestead. So we need a lot of freezer space. Uh, I was talking to my sister today and remembering back when we were kids in high school and we had two freezers, but we also didn't have animals. Now back, uh, I, I think that I think having animals in sort of homestead, first of all, homestead was not really... I don't think it was much of a thing back in the early 80s. People talked about it in some sort of remote sense of being something that happened somewhere else. Um, I knew maybe one family that had chickens, but nobody was going to the neighbor and buying eggs, where now I have several people I can buy eggs from. So we had two freezers, and it was the bounty from both gardens ended up, it was <laughs> it took a couple of weeks to do it, but picking the beans and tomatoes and blanching and processing and all kinds of stuff. So we had... We had fresh frozen veggies all winter long, which let me tell you, that was when you don't get it, when you move away and go to college and then you get like this, what the heck is this stuff, veggies? Yeah, you miss it. Makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, so one of the other things that you and your husband do and we haven't talked about, we talked about before is maple syrup. And looking at the calendar... I'm, I'm guessing you guys have already tapped trees probably two or three weeks ago. Yes, it's, it'll be three weeks this coming Sunday. And how, how does the sap run look this year? It's very close to last year. It's different in that the ratio between sap to syrup has changed slightly this year from last year, which we don't know exactly what that was. Um, we're, we've been pretty dry here, so maybe that's what it is. There's a lot of science behind it, so not exactly sure what caused that, but it is taking more sap to boil down into the amount of syrup that we're looking for. So it sounds to me like what that means is the sap is waterier or less sugar content and, and it, than it was last year. Right. So from a, this is more business. So from a production standpoint, let's say last year, 10 gallons of sap would make a half a gallon of syrup. And it's probably fairly close ratio. This year, let's say 10 gallons of sap makes a pint of syrup. 
How does that do to the price point? It doesn't change it. It just means that we've worked harder than we needed to compared to last year, I guess. Um, we don't, we based on the cost of the materials that we use and not the labor. Um, okay. So it's like, you know, the cost of the packaging has gone up. The cost of the um, vessels that we use to catch the sap in the first place, that has gone up as well. So that has increased our prices because of that more than the labor has. And the wood is free because you've got the forest in the backyard. Right. And actually we've reduced the amount of wood that we have to use from since the last time we talked about maple syrup on the podcast, we now have an RO system, a reverse osmosis, which we're able to take most of the water out before we even start to boil it down, which has been a huge labor savings then. Now, how do you do that? That sounds very interesting. Well, there's a lot of people that have reverse osmosis systems for their water. So instead of taking the minerals out of the water, we're taking the water away from the minerals. We're just doing it opposite from what people are doing with their water systems in their homes. And there's a machine that can detect the difference between water and not water? Yes. Wow. I'm officially an old fart. (laughs) (laughs) It's really, it's a series of different filters and it's very simple that it just goes through these different filters, catches what it wants in one spot and throws out the rest. Dang. So I would have, it sounds like that has a, a, I don't know if prohibitive is the right word, but it sounds like it has a spendy upfront cost. I'm not too terribly bad. And then once you buy it, it's, just replacing some filters every once in a while. The actual system itself is good for many, many years, as long as you take care of it. Yeah. And pretty much anything. Nice. Wow. That is really cool. That I, now I have something else. I have another rabbit hole to go down. Oh my gosh. Cause I have nothing else. <laughs> I'll be able to, to do. share some videos with you. <laughs> oh, please do. Yes. I would love to see how that works. That sounds very, very cool. All right. I th- that's really the thing I wanted to get into. And um, so here's the other thing. So if somebody is listening and thinking, you know, there isn't any reason at all that I can't start my own home business making mixes in the middle of Iowa or, well, Iowa's too close. Can't go to Iowa. Idaho or Wyoming. Um from your experience, is there what what advice, what what wisdom do you have to share about how to start investigating? How do you proceed from an idea to getting the first product in the bag? Do trial and error with your family, with your friends. Now you know that they're going to give you different advice from other people, and they're going to give you different comments. But if they at least say, yeah, it's good. It's great. You should do something with this. Then, you know, keep working at it and then find other people who are willing to try it that are not those friends and family that are more willing to give you slightly more honest feedback than those immediate friends and family. Um, check your cottage food laws. There are many, many states who allow a variety of foods to be made in your home kitchen. You do not have to invest in a commercial kitchen from lots of homemade products. So start there, look at your laws. If you don't like the laws, change them, you know, get, get involved in whatever it takes to change the laws so that it can fit some of your non-hazardous food products you can make in your home kitchen. 
And once you get that business started, make sure you have a separate bank account. I didn't do that for the first few years and it was really tough to tell, was I making money or not? So make sure you have that separate bank account if you are starting a business. The separate bank account is a good idea. And, and definitely um, I, I have a page with the various uh, cottage laws in the States, but I will admit that I have been slacking on keeping it updated. Um, but I know that in Oregon, there is, this is, doesn't make any sense. They're, they put, so they will tax you on your income, but they put a cap on your income. Like, what's wrong with you people? So some states have caps on what you're allowed to make. Um, some states, you can, you can make the cake, you can sell the cake, but you can't make or sell the buttercream icing. Well, the cake isn't a whole lot of good if you can't sell buttercream icing. Um, so double check for sure to make sure that you know what the um, safe food and unsafe food items are in your particular state. And, 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 and even though I just said, dear listener, that in all those times we went to Tallahassee and served food on the streets, never once did we see the health inspector, don't take that as that's going to happen to you. <laughs> It's you, you might have the, an angry neighbor someday that you don't want to have write you out. Yeah, you, you the, the yeah you don't really messing with the sheriff who has the power to do lots of things you don't want to have happen if he gets mad at you for some reason. That's the thing you don't want to do. So don't make don't make the sheriff angry. Um, and that sounds like probably good advice on all levels and and, and for everybody everywhere. Let's take a moment out. For a word from Jake about his tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Um, all right, so I asked you, and we did this, the the little short uh, quick-fire round, but we're going to do it again, and I have actually think I've, I've added uh, maybe at least one question to that, but then we're going to go into the uh, uh, chef's table portion for the page transporters. So of the five flavors, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, or umami, which one is your favorite? I have a very intense sweet tooth. Which, listening to your um, episodes about reducing sugar has been very difficult for me to listen to. <laughs> I, I fully appreciate that problem, and, and I, I marvel at maybe several things have happened at once. One, m my determination to eat less has caused me to not like it as much, which I thought was really strange. It might also be that as I'm getting older, my preferences are changing. But there was a point in time that a peach pie was a single-serving event. <laughs> I, I, ain't, I ain't proud. I'm not just, just saying. One peach pie was all mine. <clears throat> what is your favorite food? Anything with pasta. So you're, you're sensing a, a carb theme here. <laughs> yeah. What is your least favorite food? 
Anything with cabbage involved, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, you name it. <laughs> I adore cabbage. Um, what sound do you love? Birds. What sound do you hate? The chalkboard with, and fingernails. What gets you excited? Food. What turns you off? Dishonesty. If you could cook for anyone ever, who would that be? Oh boy, that's tough. Anyone ever? <laughs> you know, I I just I love to cook for everyone. So that's just so hard. There's no particular person that I, I would or wouldn't. It's if you're hungry, I want to feed you. You are the quintessential Midwest mom. <laughs> <laughs> that's that would then my mother would have answered the same thing. You're hungry? Come on in. Come in. Have a seat. <laughs> yeah, there's probably food somewhere that I can whip up for you. What's your favorite food indulgence? Tiramisu. Ooh, that's a good one. And how can people follow you? Facebook is where I'm most active, and then Instagram is a close second. And anytime you want to visit my website, it's cassiescountrycovered.com. All right. Well, I will put all three of those on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 232. And we're going to say fake goodbye here because I'm going to continue on with continue on. I'll continue with <laughs> editing and centering myself as we speak um, with the chef table portion. So thank you for your time. I appreciate you being here. Good to be here. All right, folks, that's going to do it. As I mentioned, I'll put the links to Cassie's Facebook and Instagram pages and website on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 232. Cassie's chef table portion is up on the Patreon for supporting patrons. If you want to be a supporting patron and listen to the chef table portions as well as access the bonus content, click the link on the support. Nope, that screwed that up. Click the support link on the show notes page. Stock makes great soup. But making stock takes time babysitting the pot on the stove. Stock also makes a great base for Cassie's mixes. Get great stock without the great time. Shop Brodo broths for meat or vegan broth options for your almost homemade soups. They ship stocks frozen, so you just put them in the freezer until you're ready to cook. Dinner today is lunch tomorrow. Shop culinarylibertarian.com slash brodo or click the link on the show notes page. Thank you for listening. I appreciate you being here. Thanks also to my supporters on the Patreon. I told you about a cookbook, and I did submit it. The working title is 50 Questions to Ask a Chef. I'm told from the publisher that it should be mid to early April when it's ready for release, and of course, I'll let you know. 
Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.